the Dinner Table Talks. My name is Joe Hilliard, and I'm here every week at the dinner table across from the beautiful, the glamorous, the always exquisite... Aislinn Campbell! That's who I'm talking about, and I guess there's just as good a place to start as any in that I almost killed us all the other night. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) I don't like the timing of this. Because you'll remember last week in our Kitchen Ascension segment, Uh I was talking about cast iron. You were talking about how awesome you are and how wonderful you are and how you do everything right. I don't remember that. But (laughs) one thing I do after I use my cast iron skillet is I will take a scrub brush and running tap water and get all the food out. Then I place it back on the burner, turn it back on, and I'm getting all of that liquid out like we talked about last week. This time, however, you were already asleep when all of us went down, and I probably got distracted, and then I just went to bed. I just forgot that I was doing that. So and then I you, get up yeah, at you woke 7 a.m., and I can hear the gas. I can hear it on. Mm-hmm. And I go in the kitchen, and I'm like, oh, f***. So I turned it off. Everyone's alive. Okay, so there is no danger broken. in running your gas stove. That, there's no danger in that. But there is danger in an unattended skillet being heated with nothing in it for, what, six, Listen, seven, eight hours? not only that, is the melting plastic olive oil bottle that's laying right next nearby. to the thing that we're lucky that it didn't. I mean, like, for real. All crises were averted except for one, and that is that all of that beautiful years-in-the-making seasoning from my cast-iron skillet was gone. And it all burned off, and now I'm looking basically at a raw cast-iron skillet. So Mercury wh- retrograde karma has been on your ass this last season. But what <laughs> that leads me to is the idea that I can talk about seasoning a raw cast iron pan you got to get all the rust off of it then you got to get it all dried and you got to get it all re-oiled and then you let it sit there for a while and then you do that a couple of times and you stick it in your oven at 500 for about an hour completely coated in a thin coat of oil so i feel i am a little bit of an authority on cast iron but that was just reprehensible behavior that's why i brought up the mercury and retrograde karma things don't just happen the timing of that was essential You needed that to happen. Well, if anything, to reacquaint myself with how to season that raw cast iron. I haven't had to do that in a long, long time. My cast irons is nonstick as any pan that you can put in front of me because of that thick, thick, thick coating over time of that seasoning. But now it's not. Start over. (laughs) It'll be fine. It's always fine. It's always fine. My favorite entomologist, he's just so freaking smart. And I noticed the other day that he had posted he was watching High on the Hog. Yeah, we're a couple of episodes in High on the Hog. It's on Netflix. The journey of African-American food from inception to now. Mm -hmm. And I'm sold. So he turned it on and I was very pleasantly surprised to know that not only is it about the African-American food journey, how... African culture has influenced American culture from the earliest days that we existed on this continent. It's also just a beautiful, beautiful look at food from Africa and then the food as it transitioned to America and then how it's evolved in the American culture. Would you recommend it at this point? I think people should watch it. It's very interesting. I mean, it is interesting because I think what he's alluding to is that I scream at the TV. The thing that I have the biggest frustration with right now as it relates to just life, maybe it's that I now understand that everything has an agenda. Agenda setting. Exactly. And 
that's great. That's your agenda. But I know some things too. And I know some things differently than you know them. And okay, well, what's my agenda? You know, like, what's the agenda of this podcast? And what are you purposely trying to make sure I see? I do a lot of screaming at the TV when there's a lot of, we need you to know this, 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 and this. But I'll tell you, one of the things that really, really rocked me and I thought was awesome and exciting is that I have begun to notice that my trip to Charleston and South Carolina last year, the timing of that had to be just absolutely perfectly divinely aligned and timed because so much of what I'm going through, we're going through as a country, just the experiences that, experiences that I had, I needed to have been to Charleston at this point in my life with how often it's coming up in my sphere now. Uh, you're talking about how Charleston was the import port for 40 to 60% of the slave trade. So clearly African-American food came through it. And then they'll right. focus on Charleston and some recipes that yeah. are well known in Charleston and talk about the African roots of them. And that's the, basically the show. Yeah. And the Carolina gold rice that's grown in Charleston and so Charleston was an important, important part of the growth, all the growth of the United States of America. Right. All of it. Yeah. So many things that we spread across our country, good and bad, <laughs> came, came right out of Charleston. What I'm loving about it, and, and I'm, we're going to quit. We're going to talk about it again on yes, another day. Yes, this is day. our brief summary. But the types of things that came out of Africa, the types of seeds that traveled with the Africans to the United States of America and became a part of the Southern culture, okay? Not to say that in other climates and other continents of the world, let's use another continent as an example, Asia. Okay. Okra, rice, black-eyed peas, cabbage, collards, bok choy, things that were growing in a certain place in a certain type of climate that we have a matching climate to mm -hmm. here. But the interesting thing about it being the African culture is where a lot of our Southern okra, black eyed pea, you know, you don't run into bindi masala very often. Mm -hmm. You might run into it now. Well, are you talking more about often. the parallel use of similar agriculture in different parts of the world and how they erupted into completely different dishes yes. and cuisines? Yes. And, yeah. But how does that affect when it comes to the United States of America. Sure. Okay. Right? I'm with you. So gumbo and fried okra and okra soup and all of the things that they talk about and make on the show, we're just now getting experiences with the fact that okra was being used in other cultures on other continents because they could grow the exact same types of things. And who knew, who know? like we've been studying a little bit. I, we've called it the star seed or basically like the beginning stages of where the original consciousness of human beings started mm -hmm. to grow. Mm -hmm. And the Persian Gulf, we've talked about right. that. You know? Mesopotamia. Okay, so I find that really interesting too. If you think about oh, like, where did the first I'm okra seed- I'm obsessed with a little bit of it. Which, which continent mm -hmm. was the first- did the first okra plant become something and then did it start in India and then get brought to Africa or did it well, start in Africa about, and go to India well, or think Africa about, to and America? This could or? be a, um, an answer question, a series of them probably. Marco Polo got wealthy trading spices. Right? And, and when oh, I was God, a kid, yeah. I was like, that didn't make any sense. Who's buying, who's paying for paprika or whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah. And the, and the slave trade route went two directions, right? I mean, people are going and coming back and going and mm -hmm. coming back. And they are trading things. That's what ports were. 
And one of the beautiful things about High on the Hog is how many markets you see in other countries where it's just people getting together to buy and sell food and how that traveled across the world. It is fascinating. Very. So yes, the answer is go watch it, but share your opinions, what your thoughts are about not just the program and what they're showing you and the history and some of the things, but like what the what's the agenda they're trying to drive? I think that those things are all very important things about every single thing we watch, listen to, participate in. And not because you Googled it and you saw some research report about blah, 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 but because you thought. Unanswered questions. I'm trying to wrap up our conversation about the F word. You were curious what the definition of obscene is. <laughs> and it's one of those words that has several definitions, but I think the one that is closest to the context is containing or being language regarded as taboo in polite usage. Obscene lyrics, obscene literature. Say that again. Containing or being language regarded as taboo in polite usage. You don't go to church and scream the F word. That's not a place for that because that word is obscene. Been placed well, on a that, list maybe of that's obscene. That's why I don't go to church. <laughs> right. If there was a church where I could scream the F word, I'd be there in front row center. That's what's I fascinating. I do go to those concerts. Yeah. I that's do. what's fascinating <laughs> with obscenity is that a power must define it and then the population must agree to it. And it shifts and it changes over time. Well, someone in power tells you whether something's good or bad and whether you believe the person in power telling you that thing is good or bad creates whether it has any power to well, be obscene or not power obscene. tells us something's bad and we agree to that blindly because the power is so... Sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, well, that's, the entire... that's the human race. That is religion. We have, yeah, religion, healthcare. <laughs> like, yeah. The, what did you call healthcare? And let's please not go down the rabbit hole. The health. Oh, this one's coming the religion out of me in of, the future. Yeah. Yeah. Healthcare has become a religion. Now let's discuss Nevergreen that I said last week. And I'm going to say something and you just relish in it, okay? I was 100% wrong. I know the word evergreen. I know what it means. I know how to use it. I have been listening to a podcast where they have adopted and I guess created the word nevergreen in a negative context of evergreen. And I brought it right on here to this show. And you were correct in calling me out. Miss so you listen to a podcast. Uh, explain that to me. It's, it's, I'm not going to explain more than that. It's not very good. <laughs> I just said the wrong word. But on to more exciting news. Two weeks ago. You actually did my research? I did. Two weeks ago, we talked about how we need to talk to our restaurateur friend, our friend Christian, who owns Sugar Bakers, mm -hmm. a restaurant that we like a lot near our home. They have a cucumber dill soup there that I crave. They serve it cold. You love it very much. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that he'd give us the recipe because I've asked other restaurateurs for soup recipes and they're like, sorry, nope, can't do it. For the reasons I gave two weeks ago, if you can make it at home, you wouldn't come eat it here. Mm -hmm. I got in touch with him. Mm -hmm. I explained everything. Mm -hmm. I said, I swear to you, we will never, ever pass it along. Mm -hmm. So that's real. Mm -hmm. We're not giving you a recipe today. I'm just here to report that I've got the recipe in my hand. I know. That means you can make it for me. And it's pointed down to a normal kitchen, not a restaurant kitchen where I've got to make 17 gallons of it. I can make a serving for us to enjoy. So coming soon, Sugar Baker's. Cold cucumber dill soup. Oh, I'm so excited. Did you also tell, while, while you had him on the phone, tell him I need some, no, I can't even eat ding-dongs. 
think we should move along. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we've got to come up with a name. What if for we this do something bit. like this? That's not bad. The dinner table talk time machine. That's from Wayne's World. Do you yeah, remember? Of course. <laughs> I love that movie. We like to talk about the episode that we put out one year ago this week. We talk about it as a trip down memory lane, but even more interesting about the seasonality of the vegetables and how mm-hmm. what we did with the vegetables that are typically coming out of the ground this time this year, what did we do with them last year? Yeah, and it helps us remember, oh yeah, we haven't made that in a long time. That's right. Like a whole year. We should I make it. I think we're about to say that. Episode 1.42, one year ago, you had a tearful kind of continuation about that ego conversation that we had had the previous week. I suppose I'm going to have to listen to it because I don't recall what you're talking about. We had probably the biggest COVID conversation that we ever had during the pandemic. Oh, I was probably stressed out. Think about it. June (laughs) 2020 was when Uh this came out. And one of the things that... I had just quit my job in the beginning of a pandemic that we had no freaking clue where we were going in it. (laughs) Well, think about it. It started for us when my daughter flew back for spring break and then couldn't go to school, right? That's when it was all starting. Hmm. Well, now, two months later into June, we're beginning to kind of set our own knowledge and definitions and observations into play. So it was really an interesting talk. Mm -hmm. And one of the observations that we made, which became kind of painful at the beginning of being able to go back to restaurants when you want to eat outside, was how few outdoor dining restaurants... It's interesting because this is the timing. A year later. We literally just two weeks ago were talking about the idea that like... We need to be able to have, and there's more places. Yeah, it was about how in the downtown area you had driven through it, and they were kind of amazed that all these places have sprung up during the pandemic, of course, in order to stay open with outdoor dining areas. Mm -hmm. I know that there's a lot of the world that absolutely doesn't agree with me, but I actually have found that the pandemic has been beneficial to our world. I think you mean illness notwithstanding what... The pandemic, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, what the pandemic made us do was have to think about things differently. We had no choice. And from that spurred a lot of innovation, a lot of fast forwarding and kind Mm -hmm. of evolution. And I I tend to agree with you a little bit. Mm -hmm. Even this, a friend of mine said, are you going to this thing? A thing which this friend would have assumed that I would have gone to and certainly would be a thing that I would have gone to a year and a half, two years ago. Mm-hmm. My filter for saying yes to going out and doing things has come way down. While my bank account tends to go a little bit up because yeah. we're just spending <laughs> money in a different way. For me, it's like we had to stop for a minute and start thinking about what our priorities were we stop for a minute and start thinking what our priorities are well like for a business it's like anything we can do to get you back coming here to eat because we need you to spend money here the governor and says they shut uh, us down so we don't have we can't do anything else right now so we might as well do some renovations on the restaurant right. and create a space where we can get some money yeah. coming back in the governor here. says that i can have people over to eat at my restaurant if i have an outdoor area i don't have an outdoor area let me throw one up now let me tweak it and make it presentable and amazing and that's kind of the phase that we're in now and it's been refreshing now that things are opened up and you and i are going out for snacks and fun a little bit here and there 
Oh, we've been to have out. options, like to have more outdoor options, which is what you and I would choose anytime there was a choice to be made. Well, that's the thing that I keep thinking about with this whole deal. Like everything about it has put the world more in alignment with what I want anyway. And that's like, hard. And that's hard I, to ignore. L- let's let's take better care of ourselves. Let's stay out of each other's spaces. Let's wash our hands. Let's go outside. Let's go on very specific vacations where we spend more time outside and less time shopping inside crowded restaurants. And I don't know. I mean, we talked about this a few weeks ago and that whole back to normal kind of thing. Right. So many of the things have been breaking down, like systemic breakdowns of things that to me... I I just have different views of the world than a lot of people do. There are a lot of people that have views like me, but there are a lot of people that don't have views like me. And that is that we had an opportunity handed to us. And those opportunities like that never come without pain. And there was a lot of pain felt by a lot of people during that time. That's it. One of the greatest things I have learned in my lifetime very recently, probably the pandemic and the shift and all of the things that have happened in my health in the last since the podcast started for that matter, really. And that is that with crisis comes opportunities and with pain comes the ability to shift and change and see things differently. And we don't have to go through pain to receive the things that we want in life. But most of the time, we're not going to shift or move if we don't feel pain, is, okay? If there's no so fire under if us. we go back, right back to where we were with talking about restaurants opening up outdoor spaces, this is an example of that. If you don't do something to change your restaurant right now, you're going to go out of business. So let's do some shifting. Let's make the change we have to make. A lot of times in the past, people wouldn't start that business that was their great dream until they got fired. Right. The and pain, then it's the like, pain, well, yeah. shit, I got to do something. There's some kind of transformative notion that's coming out of this pain. Right. You take a chicken and a bunch of delicious vegetables and you create a velouté sauce. You can create a delicious chicken pot pie out of it. And that's exactly what we did one year ago now. I love chicken pot pie. Will you make me that? I thought that's where we'd be going. <laughs> and of course I will. Because we have everything. I'm looking at your little note sheet here mm-hmm. and you had written down... Carrots. These are the items that we used in our chicken pot pie last year. Carrots, celery, onion, squash, eggplant, green beans. I have all of that except eggplant. I'm certain I said this a year ago. Chicken pot pie is one of my favorite dishes on the planet. Well, your wish is my command. I can tell you something else I love. What's that? Brisket. Mm. Grass-fed, local farm brisket. And you brought home a... 11-pounder ginormo mm-hmm. from like what do you call those things they manhole things manhole cover yeah that sized like brisket <laughs> yes <laughs> barely fit in the freezer <laughs> one of the vendors that we buy our meat from at the farmer's market and look if you haven't bought meat from a local farmer yet local rancher someone who's raising it themselves it is time for you to ascend into that point find them you can usually find them at the farmer's market ask a lot of questions make sure you're getting what you think you're paying for she brought briskets. And I splurged because you buy that by the pound. So I bought this huge brisket with no intention of knowing exactly when it would be prepared. I just wanted to stick that in the freezer. And the weekend was perfect timing. We were going to go out to the farm for a work day. And I said, hey, I've got this 11-pound brisket. Anyone interested in smoking a brisket? So just like the crawfish boil where your dad showed me how he did it so that I could do it the next time, I wanted to watch him 
smoke a brisket. I will typically do my briskets, like most of my meat that you would put into the grill or a smoker, I do it in the oven because I just didn't want to fiddle with the griddle or the smoker. But now that we're moving out to the farm, I'm really looking forward to using those tools a little more often. So yeah. your, your dad you know, showed me what he did. He put a rub on it at 7 o'clock in the morning, stuck it in the oven at 250 or 300 or so just to kind of get the center going. And then he transferred it over to his gas grill on low. We kept it slow and low at 250. But in addition to that, he uses wood smoking pellets, smoking pellets, wood pellets. Mm-hmm. They come in all the different aromatics. You know, you can get apple wood, pecan, etc. Uh, he was using a mixture. Put them into this specifically made tube that's covered in holes. You let it on fire. You stick it in there. It's not giving you a heat source. It's giving you your smoke source. Mm-hmm. And we cooked it for seven, eight hours. Mm-hmm. Slow and low and slow and low. The brisket is a cut of meat from the breast or lower chest of beef. Given its position in the chest, which is full of muscle and connective tissue, because cow were heavy and that's one of the muscles they used to hold themselves up this was deemed as an unattractive meat mm-hmm. a tough piece of meat will just give it to the farm hands and they can pr- try to do something with it mm-hmm. and as happens in these cultures we've talked about it over and over and over again if you watch high on the hog you're gonna watch them do yeah. this conversation exactly i, I yeah. somehow coined this phrase two or three weeks ago they moved it from sustenance mm-hmm into an art form. Mm-hmm. And now brisket is, you know, more expensive than it used to be because people like a brisket. We've talked about briskets on the show several times with the freeze and the hurricanes. and the- It's one of those Texas things. And we buy briskets in Texas because if all else fails, we've got a barbecue pit and we can cook an 11 pound food for everybody. Yeah, chunk yeah. of meat. Mm-hmm. Do it slow. Do it low. And we ate that all together with your family after a nice, long, very hot work day. Yeah, my mom had made a very traditional cucumber salad, literally cucumbers, tomatoes, and onions. And it was really good. She sw- like her the vegetables it. were swimming in mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Yeah. vinaigrette. Yeah. As opposed to me just kind of splashing it on there. Oh yeah, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah, and it, it stays in the fridge yeah. for like a while and you just keep putting more cucumbers, more tomatoes, more, and it also has time to like absorb the flavors and Melange. sit in there. Yeah, and then she also made a like a bean salad, but she used the yard-long bean, so she looked up a recipe for a yard-long bean salad, which I think that would be fun to share with folks because we've been talking about how to use the yard-long beans. Yeah, I posted a great picture of you holding those really long, purple, beautiful beans this week on Facebook. They're I've been growing tons deli- of those. They're delicious. If you've ever been to any kind of, been to or seen on a TV show, any kind of Asian market, those beans are, they're a regular thing now. I just didn't realize what I was looking at when we started learning to grow them. And now that I've actually gotten to know the vegetable and like how it handles the weather and what happens to it after you harvest it and all what it tastes like, it's like, oh, I've, I recognize those. I've seen those before in other markets, Asian markets, things like that. And one of the other salads we had was actually a coleslaw salad that you made. It was fantastic because I've got a ton of cabbage and carrots and onions and peppers. and There are barbecue hubs all over the country, right? You've heard of Kansas City ribs and certainly South Texas is known for its brisket. And the sides that you serve with them could be just as debated as your brisket cooking technique. Mm-hmm. So when you say coleslaw, dozens yeah. of different types of coleslaw. So yeah. I'd be glad to make you coleslaw, baby. Do you want a big mayonnaise thing? I've had that before. Do you want something a little more citric and, and, and tart? 
Yeah, that was the one. And I had mentioned that a friend of mine used to make this really beautiful red cabbage salad. I couldn't remember exactly, but it was like orange. I think it had orange in it. And then you came on later and said cilantro. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It had like Camino or chili or something in it like that. So I Googled like a citrus orange slaw and came up with a great recipe. I think one that we'll use over and over and over again. It's called Sweet and Tangy Citrus Slaw. We'll post it on our social media. It's got your cabbage, shredded carrots, finely chopped shallots. I used onion, garlic, cilantro, the zest and juice from one orange, then additional lime juice, oil, sugar or honey. We used honey, salt, and pepper. And you just mix it in a bowl, stick it in the fridge so that it can melange. It's so nice to have food around. Just pull it Easy. out of the refrigerator and Black eat it Black really IPs. Boom. Pour them in the... They're already cooked, oh, ready yeah, to I go. Did. That's not even on our notes for today. I made the first pot of our Black IPs. They were incredible. They were incredible. I made egg McMuffin sandwiches for breakfast last weekend. Mm-hmm. Double fried egg. Mm-hmm. Gluten-free bread. Bacon. And goat cheese. With a slice of tomato on Those there. Those were fantastic. Fresh tomato. Mm. Yeah, he cooks good food for me, you guys. He does He does that part well. We had a huge chunk of brisket left over. Clearly, four of us aren't going to eat 11 pounds worth of meat in a day. Your folks kept half, and then we took half back home. And let's just do some brisket tacos. Oh, brisket tacos, man. One of my favorite tacos that you hardly run into is a brisket taco. Well, I just finally chopped the brisket up, sauteed some peppers and onions, Poured some broth over that, put the brisket in there and let it just kind of cook for a while and really got good. even more and more tender. Then, of course, you use a slotted spoon so you don't put a bunch of slop in your taco. Tomatoes, raw onions, I put a little the bit of cheese. In mine again. You like, put coleslaw inside put the of coleslaw it. coleslaw in yeah, my taco. mine on the side. And then I made a delicious pot of good old-fashioned green beans, which we've talked mm. about a couple times on the show, so we don't need to do that now. But green bean season is a very, very fun season. Black IP season's a very, very fun season. All the seasons are fun. Because those I don't get tired of too much. Mm-mm. Just a good old-fashioned pot of black eyed peas. Well, and we're just now entering into the squash abundance. That one I get tired of. <laughs> I, today, for the very first time when I went out to harvest, I I found two hidden zucchinis, basically. And they weren't, they weren't so hidden. Like, I harvest every day. So they weren't so hidden. Like, some people will find them, then they're like, like when you found those habaneros last year. Well, no, this isn't exactly hidden. that. Because people know what I'm talking about when the, when I say a hidden zucchini. Uh-huh. Like we're talking about like a six foot long zucchini. Oh, oh boy. Like, or a three foot long zucchini, like this massive whatever. Some people would harvest their zucchini and squash the way that the size that I harvested it today. To me, that's overripe. Like that's the reason you end up with zucchini boats is because that someone zucchini got too big. Someone missed it, and today is the first time that I've got a couple of squash that are pretty nice size. Well, last night we went to a favorite restaurant that we talk about all of the time on the podcast, Bellinos. You've heard the name before. But we went there for a very special reason, and that is that my daughter has started her first official job working for Bellinos as a hostess, and that was super fun and exciting to get to see her there working, and I was I didn't do too much momming, oh, although boy. we were trying to like snap pictures of her, like selfie, selfie mm-hmm. style, like catch a picture of her where she Well, she would never agree to that, so it had no. to be super on the sneak. Right, exactly. Had exactly. My, we were sitting at the bar, just enjoying an appetizer, 
and I had our position correct. And as soon as she stood right there, I said, I'm going to whisper to you, here we go. And my camera's ready to go. I'm just going <laughs> to take a picture. Took a few tries and a couple of, we all stop it, please. Yeah, exactly. No. But that got us, yeah. <laughs> That got us talking with the bartender, actually, and, you know, just the people around us, because that's how we are, about the idea of, like, your first job, you know, and especially for those of us that have had, like, service jobs where you've, you know, been a wait staff or whatever, and my first job, well, my first first job was working at my grandmother's podiatrist office uh, in the data department, back oh. when they had, like, actual fi- massive files and files and files, and they had somebody in there filing all the time, and right. pulling insurance claims, and blah, blah, blah. So I did that kind of, like, data entry kind of stuff for them, but my first job as a waitress was at a tiny little cafe in the small town. I mean, the town that I grew up in it's much bigger than that now, but back when I grew up in it, it had like 16,000 people in it. It was a little bitty town. This little tiny cafe, and there's not a lot of like restaurants back in those days. There just weren't any restaurants in our town, and there was a couple of local places, and this was a little local cafe, and man, that was interesting. Just... It's eye-opening. Well, yeah, absolutely. Because when you go to a restaurant, the restaurant is typically, unless it's the smallest of mom-and-pop places, putting on a show. Right? The hostess greets you. They take you to a table. You have an interaction with this wait staff. Maybe the manager pops around to say, hey, how is everything tonight? You don't see the kitchen. You don't see how they're making the food. You don't see how they're making the drinks. They're just brought to you. Mm -hmm. This first job, you learn a lot about how things work. Mm -hmm. My first job in a restaurant was in college at a little tea room called Saronia. Mm -hmm. It's where the frou-frou ladies ate. Mm -hmm. It's where you might take a date on a Sunday's brunch kind of thing. Oh, like sugar makers. Man, I learned a lot. I really learned the most at Black IP, which of course is in a chain restaurant. I don't even think it's around anymore. It's a lot like Cracker Barrel, but less of the hokey country store part of it. More of the Luby's Cafe style of it. But brought out to your table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all that home cooking. You Mm -hmm. know, the basket of bread and cornbread that came out. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the night, there was a big bunch of bread and cornbread and we'd all take it home. I used to eat it Black IP a lot, actually. I liked their the veggie platter. That was my thing. It was the first time I was around a bunch of different types of people because of this right. really strange homogenous kind of upbringing that I had. And the college that I went to was just an extension of this homogenous white bread nonsense. Mm-hmm. And there was a waitress there, and I was, t- I was telling you about this last night when we were wondering how we can get a special tip just to the hostesses. They're, they're tipping out the hostesses just like when I was working out there. You'd have to tip out the bartender a percentage of your sales. I mean, blah, blah, blah. There was this one waitress, and I'd do like $60 tips. Which at the time, if my memory serves right, was a really good amount of tips. Mm-hmm. But there was this one girl, Deborah, who would always double us. And she's not getting more tables. She's not getting bigger tables. She's just getting people when it gets down to write the gratuity on your credit card slip. They're electing to give her more than they would have given me. And the performance of it all and the, the attitude that she had and the cultivating of the regulars and that's the guy that comes in and eats that bread and cornbread and might get a bowl of black eyed peas but then tips $20 on top of it it's a one top table and you don't have to no fuss no muss but you're going to get an amazing tip at the end of the night I'm thinking if I got a $20 tip that's a third of all of my tips if she's getting five of those of course you know you learn a lot in these experiences Oh, yeah. It's when you meet all the people and you, yes. and then you hang out with them after the yes. restaurant closes late at night. And one thing it gets me thinking about as it relates to the first job for Lillian is that this is a great first job. It is. Because we're talking about the 16-year-old job. 
the first job is in the back of a doctor's office, data entry. I can't screw anything up, right? And then the next job, this little cafe, you know, I, I remember that they hired me to wait tables. And I mean, the tips were not great because it was just that kind of place, small, didn't have that many, didn't have that many people. And that's where I learned that the kitchen staff could be so freaking mean, man. They just would just yell at you and just like, if you did it all wrong or if you did something wrong or whatever. I was a terrible waitress. <laughs> really? I really was because I'm too, like, I want to hang out and talk to you and I want to like chat with you. And then by the time I get back to the kitchen, I've forgotten what you asked me for, mm -hmm. you know? I'm not good for that kind of thing. I was a fantastic hostess, but... One of the things that I found really interesting about this whole concept is like, you know, like Hunter's first job, you know, his first real job his was... His first real, real job was at Alamo Drafthouse, yeah. an amazing chain of movie theaters. And he's a movie guy, like I'm a movie guy. Mm -hmm. And he thought this was going to be backstage at the movie theater experience. And I, mm -hmm. I have to love it because I enjoy the movie theater experience so much. But Alamo's gimmick is that they have full bar and food. So during the movie, there's runners that are just basically running up and down the steps of a stadium theaters mm -hmm. all night long delivering mm -hmm. food. And he, he changed his tune one night. He was like, oh, dad, I'm not looking forward to tomorrow. Why? Spider-Man's opening. Mm. Now, that's the opposite. Uh, I can't wait till tomorrow. I'm going to go see Spider-Man. No, no. The theaters are going to be packed. Mm -hmm. The food and the drink orders are going to be nonstop. And I will have walked 30,000 steps before the end of the night. That's a part of it. The first job. Like, That's not what Lily's first job's like. <laughs> well, who knows? I mean, I don't know exactly. Because they all, you just, you have illusions in your mind of what working's going to be like. Mm -hmm. And... Yes, of course, she's starting out. And I, I kind of like the idea of like your first job being something that's kind of a little bit higher up there because then you have expectations of your jobs being nothing but better and better and better as you move along, which got me thinking about right after Cortland was born. So this would have been in 99, 2000, that, that year frame. I was living in Bryan College Station area with Cortland's dad and I was working at Casa Olay. Ah, as a, I haven't been to a... Is Casa Olay still around? I don't know. I really don't. There was one we, here I used in town to at, the at the mall. Yeah. One here. Like, They're always attached to malls. go there and get malls. bean and cheese tacos and chips and salsa, the green sauce, yeah. and a Coca-Cola like every day for was like $4. Was yours attached $4. to a mall? Yes. The one you worked at? Yes. Yeah, they were a mall chain. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And the main reason that I was working for them at that time was... I didn't have a degree yet. I hadn't graduated from college. My ex-husband was working at Oshman's Sporting Store. Yeah, that's a defunct and, chain now too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The academy of its day. Exactly. He was going to school full-time and working a solid part-time job. And I was trying to work up at least 30 hours and keep a kid so that we didn't have to pay for childcare or we could pay for childcare a little bit, but not too much. And, and I remember those moments. This I would call I would call this almost like a portal. Like it's the moment when I connected with the energy I needed to connect with that told me this is not what you want to do with your life. Driving home after collecting my young son, one-year-old, less than one-year-old child, after my job at Casa Olay, where I was making like no money at all, because people at Casa Olay don't tip. Those types yeah, of jobs. Yeah, they spent all their money at the mall already. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, they run you like crazy mm -hmm. and then leave you a dollar right. or some change on the table. Like that was the days of that kind of stuff. Whereas like where Lily's working at at Bellino's, no. 
that could be a full-time job. And that's what you, and that's your, your job that you enjoy and love. Hold on, let me interrupt you. Isn't that funny? The expectation of when you spend more on food, you're more likely to tip. But when you go to the mall, the Casa Ole and spend less on food. It's the type of people that eat at certain types of restaurants. That's what it is. It it does. I don't believe it even has anything to do with the cost of the restaurant because the same type of person, if they would go to a restaurant like Casa Ole, they would give a nice tip at Casa Ole, but they're not going to go to a restaurant like Casa Ole very often. The other thing about it is it's not just the tipping part of it. It's the way they treat their, their servers. Sure. So at a nice restaurant, 75% of the time, your guests are all going to be very kind to the servers as well. Sure. Those restaurants, they don't care. They're running you like crazy. Oh, and I need some more sauce. Oh, and I need some chips. And oh, can you bring me a water? And oh, you forgot to bring me a straw. And oh, you did every time you walk by, ma'am, 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 ma'am. And then they literally leave you the change, like 25 cents and three pennies. I was like, this is... This is not my life. I am not living this life. But I will tell you that that was an important moment. It was an important time. It was the only place we could work where we could, where I could get health insurance, which is interesting because now my whole life has shifted to where I'm like, screw health insurance. But back you're, then, you're rejecting that religion. I'm rejecting that religion. But look how long it took me. Look at all the co- like. Well, you're, you're only a one-year-old re- child. Only reason why I was working at Casa Ole is because if you worked 30 hours at Casa Ole, they were a, cor- a big enough corporation where you could actually have some health care insurance and. We needed some access to that. I needed some access to that. It's interesting, those first initial steps into life and career and profession and jobs and what are you willing to accept depending on what your first job is and, you know, and how long will you stay in that? And at what point does the light bulb light bulb go off over your head where you're like, is this what I want to do with my life? And if it's not, what am I going to do about it? You know, and of course, it's quite possible right at that very moment was when I went back to school. My baby's about this old. I've done this amount of work. My husband's gotten this far in his schooling now. I think it's time for me to go back to school. And within three years, I was graduated from college. How much do you think that being a waitress once upon a time has molded the way you give gratuity to waitstaff now? Uh, Probably not anything. I mean, just outside of like... Appreciate the work in a way that someone that's never waited tables before can my gratuity is going to be an indication of how much I know that A, you're working hard, B, the weirdo rules we have about what we can pay as a base salary for waitstaff, $2 or whatever an hour, is insane to me. I don't know. I tip well. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. I, mean, I, I really I li- don't I like know. that about us, that gratuity I have in a those lot situations of experience with a lot of different types of professions and careers, and I've seen a lot of things. And so, yeah, it's given me perspective to be able to see things that maybe somebody who has only done a certain type of job all of their life. So, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why it's so important for kids to actually do get jobs. And Lily pushed hard for it. Like, Corlin didn't even really get a job until he was 18 and at college. That was his first job. I mean, he did a little bit of part-time work Summer. for one of his dad's buddies but he didn't really work he never had a job all the way until he went to college and someone is going to have to pay his college bills so he got a job and he's done excellent and then hunter got a job behind that job with him and that's been a great university job which if you can get into the university stay there you're golden for a long time savannah was babysitting for some friends of ours and I think became their primary babysitter, which meant that, you know, she could have a gig every weekend or so and then, and then COVID. So she said, um, be sure to tell these friends that uh, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. And she got her first gig and she's very, very excited to be quote unquote working again, Aww. but she's eager to get into it. Yep. 
Lily was eager. I will tell you the one big thing for me and my parents taught me it and then I taught it to Lily, which is if you want to have more control over your life, then you've got to pay for more of the things. Because if you ask me for money or your dad for money, they always come with strings. Some more or less, depending on, you know, what the situation is. But if you go get a job, then you have, you, those, those are your strings and you make the decisions. And the only strings that are tied to that are what your boss wants you to do and have to do and that kind of thing. So there's an opportunity for getting some control of your own life when you make your own money. We have done an episode on making chicken wings. We've also done an episode on making tandoori chicken. Mm-hmm. We have made tandoori chicken wings prior, but we never, I think, talked about it on the show. I don't remember. Outside of saying <laughs> you made some tandoori chicken wings and they were amazing. Mm-hmm. Today, we talk about making the tandoori chicken wings. And then mm-hmm. you said, why don't you make a curry with all these vegetables? And I did. Yeah. And I think I did a really good thing. Yeah. I had a bunch of cauliflower and broccoli that was all like the cauliflower and broccoli that you're not going to eat like all fresh and crisp. And I was like, we've got to eat this stuff because it's starting to get to the point where it's just not going to be that good anymore. What is an idea? Like, because you get to that point. I mean, this is the broccoli cauliflower season got to the point, cabbage, all of that got to the point where it's like, okay, we've done all the regulars. Now, what else have we not done? And I was like, man, we need to make like a curry. And if you think about a curry, that would be a really good because you can use a lot of other things in a curry as well. You can use the broccoli and the cauliflower. You can use carrots. You can use okra. You can use beans. You can use onions. You can use tomatoes. All the things that we have. This, y'all, the Indian food. And not only Indian food, but homemade Indian food. I was outside with a friend the day you were making that. And I was hanging out, you know, and then I came back inside and it was like a wall of yum. Yeah, that, Just like you, you were beat me the, over the head. You were smelling the curry. Oh my God. Right, it let's was tackle so this. Good. Let's tackle this in a systematic fashion. That food was freaking good. I'm, so it, good. I was very proud of myself. This is a meal that requires a lot of bowls. The big bowl, you put your chicken wings in, you sprinkle a little salt, some baking powder and some other spices, and then you toss them. Stick those directly onto some foil, directly onto a baking sheet, and stick them in the oven for about 45 minutes. Now you've got your baked chicken wings. You pull them out, and then you can toss them in any sauce that you want to. Mm-hmm. So basically, I made the tandoori chicken sauce and tossed the wings in it. Garam masala, crushed red chili powder, using your ball-burning powder. Mm-hmm. Honey, gave those <laughs> wings a kick. Pepper, coriander, salt, turmeric, and fenugreek leaves, which I did not use. Yogurt, lemon juice, oil. Then I threw in some melted butter just for fun. And that was my tandoori sauce. The chicken wings come out of the oven, plop them back in the bowl, just like you see them doing at the back of your favorite wing joint, and toss them up, toss them up, toss them up. They're ready to go. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that I bought as many packages of the wings from Crystal at the farmer's market as I did because I I could eat chicken wings every single night. They're so good. (laughs) Now, you said we had broccoli and cauliflower, so I looked up a broccoli cauliflower curry. Cauliflower curry, very, very well-known dish. Mm -hmm. But the one that I found said, use a big head of cauliflower Mm -hmm. or anything else you want to. So I basically got another bowl. I took the small pieces of cauliflower, the florets, the broccoli, and I put those there. And then I filled the bowl up to kind of resemble the same mass as a full head of cauliflower. And you're right. 
It was every single thing that you're growing. We will post photos. We jam-packed this thing with vegetables. Celery even. I mean, seriously. Celery, carrots, onions, tomatoes, Yeah, And then it's like beans. soup, soup, I'm building a soup kind of situation where you start <laughs> off with your onion and your garlic and your celery and your fresh ginger and your, in this case, curry powder, cinnamon, cumin. But then the next thing you put in after you've added the spices to the onion base is a can of diced tomatoes, but I went to the farmer's market and bought a couple of big, nice, beautiful tomatoes from our friends over at Edelin and did it fresh instead. Mm -hmm. Then that's cooking down. Then you add your coconut milk. Mm. Then you cook that for a good bit until everything down, all the onion stuff is soft, and then you're going to blend it or immersion blend it, and I did the immersion blending. So now you've got a silky smooth curry base. Add all of your vegetables, cook it until they're all done, and serve it over rice. I mean, it couldn't be more simple. And when I post this recipe, Run Don't Walk, to find it on Facebook and make this for yourself. You're right, Aislinn. Mm-hmm. It smelled mm-hmm. so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you had the best part of that in that you were outside and got to walk into the wall of it. Mm-hmm. Throw in that turmeric and poof, you get this whole another wall. <laughs> you throw in that ginger, poof, you get this whole other profile. Mm. Yeah, the food was seriously, seriously so good, y'all. I just devoured it. It was so good. I've been very pleased with the way that we've come up with dishes that a lot, a lot of stew dishes, curry in this case, that are allowing us to use every bit of produce that you're using. I feel like we're not being as wasteful as we might have been once upon a time. Like the chicken pot pie you're going to make for me tonight? That's going to be a doozy, so you're going to have to give me some mm-hmm. time to get my gluten-free crust ready for you. This is going to be a whole thing tonight. Mm-hmm. This is when we video. And now it's time for table topics. <laughs> Such a weirdo. Would you throw back a fish that was one inch under the legal limit if it was the only one that you had caught that day? Yes. Yes. Well, thank you guys for listening. <laughs> now, when it comes to those because kinds of conservation-based yeah, yeah, conservation rules. It has to do with the age, and it, we need it to make babies, and yeah. all of the Yeah, it's an important, like part of the the system and the flow and i care so much about the life i i know how important the life in my garden is which makes me understand how important the life in the sea is or the river or whatever and so keeping it in a in balance in a way and the thing about it is is that if it becomes a situation where they need you to harvest more of that particular animal because it's becoming out of balance. Right. They'll change the rules right. or they'll do a, okay, there's no rules this month. Go ahead and just do whatever you want. So I, I value people that are paying attention to, they're not just, this isn't one of those situations where they're just trying to make money or they're just trying to make rules. They're trying to help the ecological system of the animals in the water. The problem that I have is when you're on your own property, when you're on your own land, then if you kill all the fish in your pond, like dove hunting, I mean, there's all kinds of things. Right. Like, I'm on my own property. Well, you're on someone's property no matter where you hunt or fish. No, that's not true. No. If you're in the Gulf, you're no. on... Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. I find when when you're on your own property, there's a difference than when you allow people to come on your property, when you go out into the state's property or the government, you know, like, national waters things like that like yeah there's this is the ecosystem when you're on your own property like we may not want you to destroy the ecosystem there but it's your freaking property and 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 i know there are people that disagree with me because 
You're probably one of those people that disagree with me because this is a very conservative concept. This is my land that I live on, that I purchase, that I pay taxes on. This is mine. I will do with it what I want to. Well, for me, it's always the thing. That's the Texas girl in me right there. About you have the right to do anything you want to, Mm -hmm. the freedom to choose anything you want to, until it infringes on the rights of another individual. That's when you have to begin having those conversations. So downstream... Where whatever happens on your property is affecting what's happening downstream. Well, Those now kinds you're going to get, get into a whole thing where it. the government allows that shit. And... Here's what I want to talk about. <laughs> you know what? One thing we've never done together? Poop. Fish. <laughs> we've never gone fishing together. Is that something... That you... I'm not a big fan. Like, the whole thing just doesn't... It's not something I'm into. Especially when your brother's around to give us exactly. fish from time to time. I have, I have a fish harvester in my life. <laughs> I almost killed us all the other night. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Dinner Table Talks. We will be back next Monday with a fresh episode. In the meantime, hit us up on social media, send us an email, DM us, whatever. We want to hear from you. And we hope that you're enjoying the episodes as much as we enjoy creating them for you.